We're grateful, Father, for uh, this weather. This is how we'd like life to be all the time, weather-wise. And it's somewhat of a metaphor for how we'd like our life to be all the time. We, we have certain uh, hopes, we have certain aspirations, we have certain goals. Interesting enough, as we tend to set our plans and set our um, agendas and our objectives over the next year, over the next couple of years, inevitably when we make our plans, our plans are free of difficulty. We want things to go well, we want things to go smoothly, we want to accomplish our goals at the pace that we have envisioned. The older we get, uh, the more aware we become that you seldom um, allow that to happen. You are at work in our lives, but you work differently than we would uh, hope that you would work. We know how we want things to go, but seemingly you work in ways that often puzzle us and that we don't understand. But you always work for our good. And in our, in our moments of frustration, we can question you and wonder why certain things have occurred and why we have been set low but at the same time, when our emotions are flooding us with disappointment, we need to be reminded and we need to use our minds of the truth that your ways are not our ways and that your thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts above our thoughts and your ways above our ways. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You have things that you are attempting to do in our lives that uh, we, we know very little about. And you have a work that you're doing in our lives that oftentimes we are even ignorant of. You desire to conform us into the image of your son. And that is something that involves major change. And it also involves hardship and suffering and adversity. May we never forget that we are called to be conformed to the image of Christ. You never waver from that plan in our lives. You, you, never, um, you never get off course with that. And that's why the Christian life is a, is a struggle. That's why the Christian life at times is so um, tiring. We become weary in well-doing. You know where we are. You know what we can take. You know what we can handle. And at the right moment and at the right time, you'll give us a, a season of refreshment and of encouragement. And then we go right back into the battle. For the guys that are here tonight who are battle-worn, for the guys here tonight that have combat fatigue, encourage their hearts. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. That describes all of us. Your mercies are new every morning. We have received grace today that we didn't deserve. You keep, you keep giving us what we need, not necessarily what we want. You keep giving us what we need. So we say thank you. We uh, consciously submit our wills to you. We ask you to help us to uh, yield to you and not fight you. May this study tonight out of David's life speak to our hearts and instruct us clearly in the way that we should go. We would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, my son John was over at the house, and... Uh, he had a package, and he was really excited about it, and he opened it up, and it was a brand new seat for his motorcycle, and it was a pretty nice seat. 
And he was showing it to me, and he, he was going to, it was, it was leather, and he was going to work in some, some oil to it, and then had a picture of what it would look like when he was done. And then Mary walked in, and she said, what's that? And he said, it's the seat, it's the new seat for my motorcycle. And there was this look of disappointment. She said, I thought you sold your motorcycle. He said, no, I decided to keep it. She said, oh, John, Mary does not like motorcycles. Well, I take it back. Uh, what she doesn't like, she doesn't like her sons riding motorcycles. She wasn't all that enthused about the new seat. She wasn't enthused about the uh, motorcycle, and she thought he had sold it. She was pretty enthused about that. Uh, there's probably a reason. Things happen on motorcycles. Uh, you do what you can do to avoid them. Uh, there's a guy you may remember who, uh, most guys on motorcycles are careful and try to avoid difficulty. Uh, this guy uh, embraced difficulty and hardship and uh, his name was Evil Knievel. <laughs> Evil Knievel broke over 400 bones in his body riding motorcycles. Uh, that is amazing, and it's also incredibly stupid. <laughs> but that's what he did. And if you know anything about Evil Knievel, and most of us have some, you know, acknowledgement of him or memory of him, or we've heard of the guy, he was the guy who loved to try to jump motorcycles. Uh, he attempted 75 crazy motorcycle jumps. Most of them did not, did not turn out real well. That's Evil Knievel. Evil Knievel has a son by the name of Robbie. Uh, have you heard the phrase, like father, like son? So Evil Knievel, who passed away in a few years ago, attempted 75 motorcycle jumps. His son Robbie has completed 350. Now with that, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Kings 11. <laughs> and you say, is there a connection? Actually, there is, and you'll see it in just a minute. We are doing a study on the life of David, and uh, some of you guys have been around for a while. You've got some miles on your tires. You've been Christians a long time, and uh, you've been through a study of David. Uh, maybe you've been to, through two or three studies of David over the years. Maybe your first study was back in 66, and then you did another one in 77, and you did another one in 89. You've studied David. We, we, you, you pretty much got a handle on his life. A lot of us are familiar with David. So what we're trying to do is we're looking at David's life from a different angle. We're looking at David's life uh, from the angle and through the lens of the different men that were in his life, different men that God brought into his life, used in his life, some were friends, some were foes, some built him up, some encouraged him, uh, some were his enemies, some spent their life trying to rip him apart. Uh, that's how your life is, that's how my life is. We have people that come in and assist us. Uh, they are on our team, you, you want them in your foxhole. You will have other people who are in the church that are trying to destroy you in your foxhole. That's just how it is. The greatest criticism I've ever gotten in my life is not from outside the church, it's from in it. The most vicious things that have ever been said to me have not been said outside the church, they've been said inside. And we all experience this. We all experience it. And all of these folks are tools in our lives that God uses to uh, knock off the rough edges. Uh, he uses if we'll be teachable, if we'll, if we'll learn, uh, if we will mature, if we will try to respond correctly as the Lord would have us attempt to respond. I was reading today of a, of a Christian family in, uh, was it Rhodesia? Somebody, it, it, where was Mubabwe, the dictator, and he's overtaken the land? Of, what, is it Tanzania? Is it, I think it's Zimbabwe. It's happening, and this guy who, this dictator who was raised in Christian missionary schools has, what he has done, because the whites who had been in there came in whenever they came in, 1600s, 1700s, whatever it was, took the land, developed these farms. 
he decided to take them back. And so there have been all kinds of problems, and it, it got violent. And I was reading today about uh, a, a new book that is out, and uh, this one family went through the courts and did all kinds of things, and the violence in their tractors were being blown up, and all kinds of things. And eventually, um, thugs came in there, and to the husband and the wife and to the son, they were beaten mercy, without mercy. Um, and it was interesting because uh, the father wrote in his journal, he, he had always wondered about when Jesus said to love your enemies. And he, never, he said, I never really understood how that could be. But he said, I, I must say that when those men were beating me and beating my wife, in my last conscious moments, I had the greatest pity for them. I, 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 I felt so badly for them that they were so lost. And it wasn't for me, it was a supernatural. He said, I found myself actually loving those men and pitying them. It was a supernatural love. Oh. That's amazing. Is it not amazing? Uh, he actually grew from the experience. Was it hard? Was it difficult? Yeah. When, when those terrible things happen, it all depends on one's attitude. Those things can easily turn someone bitter. Uh, th those things can easily turn someone into hating people of other races. All kinds of things can conjure up in our hearts uh, unless we're willing to, to yield and submit to the Spirit of God. That's the way it has to be. We, we are to learn from these different events. We're to learn from what people do. Um, I've been working on this a little bit. Because I'll be 62 later this month, and I figured it's about time I started working on it. I, I got a, a few people that irritate me. <laughs> and, and you know what I've actually started doing? I, I, there's one guy in particular. I've actually started praying for him. That God would bless him, and that God would get his attention, and I really don't like this guy. I'm just being honest with you. I really don't like him. Uh, I wish he'd kind of get out of my life. Um, I think he's, he's made a profession of faith, but I'm not sure I'm buying it. But then again, it doesn't matter what I think, does it? This guy's irritated me for a long time. I don't know, a few months ago, I started thinking about the guy, and I kind of started feeling bad for him, and I started praying that God would do a work in his life. And you know what's interesting? God started doing a work in my life when I started praying that God would do a work in his life. Because I think the guy has some needs, and the whole time I've been blind to him. See, I think, I think all along I've thought that he has problems. Uh, I also think I've had a big problem. So, you know, you know, you know what, guys, I'll tell you something. It's pretty easy to stand up here and teach this stuff. I don't have much of a problem doing that. My problem is trying to walk out of here and put it into practice. You know what I mean? I can come in here and, oh, David had these different men in his life, and some were friends, and some were... And, but, you know, they're all tools in God's handiwork. And then there's this guy that drives me nuts. <laughs> and do I remember this when I'm out there dealing with him? I'm thinking, you know what, I wish this guy would just take a hike. Am I thinking, you know, Lord, maybe there's something you want to teach me through this guy. Am I thinking that? Nah, I just teach this stuff. <laughs> I don't apply it. But over the last few months, I've been trying to work on that a little bit. So we're looking at David through the lives of different men. I want to kind of, we've been kind of doing a sequence thing with David. What I want to do is break the sequence a little bit tonight. 
And I want to go to a, a man in David's life who didn't begin as a man in his life. He began as a little infant in his life. His name is Solomon. Uh, <clears throat> uh, if you're at First uh, Kings 11, there, there is a sad statement made about Solomon as he got towards the end of his life. And we're going to get to this in a minute. But, but I want to back up and give you just a little bit of history. Uh, Solomon was David's son. He was made king upon David's death. Solomon has an interesting story. Solomon has an interesting background. Solomon is... Uh, Solomon was the product of a sexual relationship between David and Bathsheba. But he was not the first product of a relationship between David and Bathsheba. If you back up historically, uh, and especially you see this in 2 Samuel. We've been primarily in 1 Samuel and then working through 2 Samuel, and a lot of this history is intertwined here in these books. But in... Uh, uh, what we've been studying so far is that David was anointed to be king after the Spirit of God was taken from Saul, the first king, because Saul would not have a heart for God. He would not follow the Lord. He was going to do it his own way. He wouldn't bow the knee. He loved being king, but he didn't want anyone being king over him. So after a whole series of events where he would rebel against God in his heart, God said, that's it. I'm going to anoint David as king. And then there's interaction between David and between Saul, the whole Goliath thing. When they start singing the song, David has slain, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, David has tens of thousands. Then what happens is that Saul gets jealous. Uh, you've heard the phrase, you say, Steve, I've heard this before. You say this every week. That's because uh, repetition is the mother of learning. That's Proverbs 4.8. Actually, it's not Proverbs 4.8. I figured if I put a verse on it, you'd buy it. I, I don't know. I think, uh, I actually think Benjamin Franklin said repetition is the mother of learning. And it is. So we're just reviewing here real quick. So we've said that David was the authentic leader. Saul was the synthetic counterfeit leader. Looked like a leader, but he didn't have a heart for God. When an authentic leader shows up, the synthetic leader, this can happen at work, it can happen in an extended family, it can happen uh, in a church. When there is a synthetic counterfeit leader that loves power and loves position and loves the perks and uh, wants to continue to hold the power, just loves the position, just loves the power, wants it not to serve but to be served, that's a counterfeit leader. When an authentic leader shows up, the synthetic leader gets threatened. Therefore, because he's threatened, he must destroy the authentic leader, because the authentic leader, by the power of his character, will expose the sham of the counterfeit leader's life. And so, as a result, David's on the run for at least 10 years, hiding in caves. Then, after a period of time, he is uh, made king over one of the tribes, then he's made king over, the whole thing happens, and at the age of 30, he's king. And then God is, God's, God's hand is all over him. After 10 difficult, hard years, the hand of God is all over him. He's united the nation. And you start going through 2 Samuel, and this guy is on a roll. He's on a roll. The favor of God is upon him. Things are happening. Uniting the nation, uniting the tribes. They're unified the way God intended it to be. Uh, he is never defeated in battle. Never. And then, as we saw last week, uh, the Bible says he had uh, peace on every side. Boy, wouldn't that be nice to have peace on every side. Everything was humming. Everything was good. Couldn't have gotten any better. New Testament says, let him who stands take heed, lest he fall. 2 Samuel 11, David falls. Why did he fall? Because he is um, decided to give himself a little R&R, take another vacation. This guy was big on vacations for a while. He would take a vacation. All the guys are out at battle, and he's staying at home. He's up on his patio, which is his rooftop. He's the king. He's got the highest rooftop. That's the way Jerusalem is even now. You'll see the rooftops or patios. 
And instead of being out with his men at battle, 2 Samuel 11 says, he was on the rooftop, he's looking down over the sea. Well, from the distance, she couldn't see him, he could see her. Here's Bathsheba getting into um, her tub. He sees her, you know the story. Everybody knows that story. Uh, David brings her in, uh, has sexual intercourse with her, um, no big deal. Then she lets him know she's pregnant. Now he's got to get her husband back from the battle where David should have been. His name is Uriah. He's one of David's mighty men, by the way. He comes back. David gets a report. Oh, good, good job, good job. All right, now you just go, go home and enjoy your family, enjoy your wife. So uh, he thinks, well, hey, he'll go, you know, they don't have bunk beds, so this is going to work out great, is what he's thinking. And uh, only the problem was Uriah had something called character. And Uriah did not sleep with his wife. He slept outside the home. And David's counterintelligence guys come back and say, uh, he, did, he didn't go in. He wouldn't sleep with her. And David was very upset because, you know, the, the timing on this thing, if Uriah had done that, David would have been covered and they wouldn't have known it's his kid. So David tries again that night, has a deal, gets him drunk, tries one more time, Uriah won't do it. So then David sends him back and gives instructions, put him in the fiercest part of the battle, and he's killed. Um, David covers it. Uh, after a certain morning time, David, in a very wonderful gesture, marries the grieving widow. Meanwhile, everything's covered. She has a child. The child is born sick. David fasts, prays, asks God to heal the child. But the child dies. David gets up and eats. It kind of surprises the servants. Uh, when the child was sick, you wouldn't eat. Now that the child has died, you'll eat. And David said, I, can, I, I cannot bring the child back. I shall go to him. Which is interesting because that tells us that infants that die go into the presence of the Lord. David said, I shall go to him. And so David goes ahead and eats. He's covering his sin. Then after maybe a, years go, a year goes by, um, the prophet Nathan shows up, tells David a story about a man that had one little sheep. That's all he had. And this one man with one sheep, there was a big wealthy landowner who had thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep. And he took that man's little ewe and took it for himself. And David got enraged. He said, who is that man? Who is it? I'll take it. And the prophet looked at him and said, you're the man. You're the man. You ever heard the phrase, what stays in Vegas? Now, how's that go? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Here's another phrase. You can be sure your sin will find you out. Uh, the devil's a liar and Vegas is a liar. What you do in Vegas will not stay in Vegas because your sin will find you out, if, especially if you're a Christian, especially. Especially. Because God does not let his men get away with things like that. Uh, David is exposed. Psalm 30. Two and Psalm 51 are the psalms of his broken-hearted repentance before God. He was forgiven, but there were the consequences that were put into motion that he would have to live with for the rest of his life. Bathsheba then got pregnant and had a son, and his name was Solomon. Um, Turn with me if you would, and I know, I know where you are, but you see, I've got to set up 1 Kings 11. We haven't even read 1 Kings 11, uh, but we're still setting it up. So turn back with me to Deuteronomy 17, 17. And while you're there, I want to ask you a question. So Solomon back there in 1 Kings 11, who, who, was, who was Solomon? He was the next king after David. So he's the son, David had all kinds of sons. He's the son that's following David as king. David was king. All right, let's go back to first, uh, where am I going? Deuteronomy 17, 17. Now here are some specific instructions that God gave for the king of Israel. 
You say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought the people, I thought we studied in here that God was going to be king of Israel, but it said, remember back there, and, then, and the people said, we want a king like all the other nations. It was always God's plan to give them a king. The problem was the people wanted the king prematurely, and they rejected God as their king. So that's when they got Saul. But God had a plan for the ages. By the way, the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of kings, you see. So God always had a plan, but the people wanted a king on their timetable. Be careful of wanting something on your timetable. Because how would you know what's best? How would I know what's best? So oftentimes we set ourselves up for disappointment because we find ourselves in a difficult spot. We find ourselves in a uh, situation in which we want to get out of as quickly as we can. And so we begin to pray and we ask God, to be merciful and to change our situation and to send relief and to take this hardship out of our lives. And we will pray and we will pray and then we will pray. And then maybe you watch some guy on TV with a TV show with a lot of hairspray and a lot of foolishness. And he says something to you like, you just need to speak it into existence. You need to ream us something into existence. That if you say it, it's the word of God. And these guys out there, these yo-yos say stuff like that. Uh, that's not true. You don't speak anything into existence. God speaks things into existence. And so by faith you claim, Lord, I just believe, I just by faith believe that by May 1st, I will be relieved of this situation. By faith I claim May 1st. And you begin to pray. And you begin to pray. By faith I claim May 1st. Oh, Lord, I just thank you that May 1st, May 1st comes and you're still up to your eyeballs. And May 2nd, you wake up and you're still up to your eyeballs. Well, what's happened? Oh, the Lord failed me. He didn't fail you. You failed. You failed. Did God ever tell you that you'd be out of that May 1st? No, you conjured that up. Don't ever put timetables on God. Because you don't know what God's going to do. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Oh, I want to get out of this as soon as I can. <laughs> Sure you do, but he wants you out of it as soon as you learn the lesson. Don't your kids want out of it as soon as they can? Sure they do, but you want, it, you want them out of it as soon as they learn the lesson. You learn the lesson, this is what kids don't get. You learn the lesson, and your life's going to improve. But you don't learn the lesson, your life's going to get harder. Well, if, if we get that as human fathers, what about the great father? Deuteronomy 17, 17. These are the instructions, <coughs> excuse me, that God gives, <coughs> that God gives for the king of Israel. And you know what I'm going to need? I can tell right now. I'm going to need some water. If there is any water and, it, it, I don't know if anybody back there, I see, there, there you go. Thanks. And then, as soon as that water comes, I'm going to take one of these. <coughs> guy in a parking lot sold these to me. <clears throat> this is my stuff for my allergy drainage, and I'll be good. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Uh, but let's pick up 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it... Are you guys still with me, or am I boring you? You, you with me? Okay. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. That's where our founding fathers got that principle. It was right here. There are all kinds of principles in the Old Testament that are in our documents. Uh, there are three branches of government. That comes out of another passage in the Scripture that talks about uh, how God functions in our lives. Anyway, I'm getting off, but it's interesting stuff because they just didn't write that stuff. They had some reasons for much of what's in there. Then you note verse 16, speaking of the king. Here are some restraints on the king. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. That's interesting. He shall not multiply horses for himself. No. Why, why can't he multiply horses? Well, because back then, the latest technological development uh, was something called an iron chariot. And if you had an iron chariot, that was, the, that was the stealth bomber. That was the drone. That was the latest thing. And all the surrounding nations, 
all the Ites, all the Perizzites, Amorites, Canaanites, all those Ite guys, they had iron chariots, you see. And they were in the promised land. Um, they're going to go into the promised land and have to fight all these guys. And God said, uh, king can't multiply horses because horses pull chariots and you can't have chariots because I don't want you trusting in chariots. I want you trusting in me. So they'd go into battle against all these guys with all the chariots and God would give them victory and they would give God the glory. So the king could not multiply horses nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He didn't want them going to Egypt because they'd been enslaved in Egypt and he says, you can't go back to Egypt. Okay? Note the next thing. Verse 17. He shall not multiply wives for himself. Watch this. Or else his heart will turn away. So, what's the second thing? It's pretty common back then for kings. Look at this. Thank you, Sean. It's a, it was a pretty common thing. In fact, it was regular for kings to have uh, not just one wife, but to have many wives. And, and God says here, but my king shall not multiply wives. You see, Israel was a nation that was to be holy unto the Lord. Uh, they were to be separate from the other nations. Well, you know, all the other nations have kings, and all those kings have multiple wives. Yeah, but not my king. One wife. God established marriage. It was Adam and Eve. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, not wives. Shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Doesn't make a lot of sense in God's plan. See, God's design is one man, one woman. That's God's plan. All right. Just a little kick. All right, that took care of that. So that's God's plan, okay? Now, the world's always got different plans than God. So now we got all this stuff going on about marriage. I mean, marriage... Oh, no, marriage is not one man, one woman. Yeah, actually it is. That's what it is. There is no marriage apart from one man, one woman. That's marriage. God ordained it. Marriage belongs to God. That's how it works. You see, that's just how it works. Well, the Supreme Court... Let's say a word about the Supreme Court. They're not. Right? Oh, I know there's a Supreme Court of this state or this group or this nation. Fine, fine. But every one of those justices will make an appearance at the Supreme Court. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. Is he going to do it when you want him to do it? Probably not. But he'll take care of it. He'll take care of it. So you just take a value. Or try one of these things I'm taking. Just relax. God's got it under control. Okay? Oh, and by the way, you guys that are married, and you're so pro-family, stay married. How's that? Well, I'm going to do this legislation and do all this. Great, fine, great. But while you're doing that, stay married. How's that? We need some pro-marriage guys who stay married to their wives. Okay? You, you, you get this, don't you? Okay. And some of you guys perhaps have been through divorce, heartbreak, all that, and, you know, some of you say, oh, man, see why that was my fault? Well, yeah, it usually takes two people. You see? The thing is, you learn from it. And you don't know where you'll be in a year. You don't know what God's going to do in your life. You know, God may bring a gal into your life and bless you beyond your wildest dreams. And when he does, stay married. And then when she starts uh, not living up to your dreams, which he will do, uh, stay married to her. Just stay married. How's that? Is that good? Let's all go get tattoos that say, stay married. <laughs> then we'll be very hip and contemporary and, you know, Anyway, okay, how did I get into that? Because God said, I don't want my king marrying all these women. I don't want him increasing wives. Okay, good. And then watch what God says. Uh, I don't want him greatly increasing silver and gold for himself. Okay? All right, I don't want him to get greedy. 
Okay, now look at verse 18. <clears throat> this is really wild stuff. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. This is his inauguration. When there's a new king in Israel, one guy dies and the next guy comes, um, he didn't say anything about throwing, you know, this ball and this ball and this reception and this reception. Look what God says. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. This is no missing around. There are no politics here. You know, God says, okay, when there's a new king, here's what I want him to do. I want him to take the word of God, and then you take parchment paper, and then that king, you don't go down to Kinko's, you don't go down to the Christian bookstore and buy a copy. No, the king has to, in the presence of the Levitical priest, the king by himself sits at a desk chair and he copies word for word the entire word of God. He makes his own copy. And then look at verse 19. It shall be with him. What? The copy he has made. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That he, not some of the days, he shall read it all of the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is clean. And there's about 11 other passages that speak of the fear of the Lord. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Watch this. By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Because when guys get into power, they tend to think they're special. Don't they? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Because if you start thinking you're hot stuff, you see, every time you open the Word of God, you realize you're nothing. You're just a creature. And you breathe because God lets you breathe. You fear Him. And if He's put you in a position of responsibility, you give Him the glory, and you are accountable to Him, and you give an explanation for your actions and your deeds. That his heart may not be lifted up above his country. Isn't this a good system, don't you think? Boy, I want to say something, and I'm not. I mean, in my heart, I'm very proud of myself, because I'm restraining myself. But I better move on, because I'm about to lose it. So let's keep going. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, to the right or to the left, so that, watch this, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. That was how God said, we're going to do this thing. Now, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel 5, verse 13. What about 1 Kings? We're on our way. This stuff's all hooked up. It's called history. Got to have a little background to know about Solomon. So, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13. God is blessing David. It's a good time in his life. Um, we looked at this earlier. Look at 5.1. We looked at this last week. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. You will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and the king David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned 40 years. And now he's on a roll. But David had an Achilles heel. Watch verse 13. Meanwhile, David took 
more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David and some of them are listed in the next verses. Now I have a question for you. Did David know about Deuteronomy 17, 17? He sure did. Did David have a copy that he had handwritten? Yeah, he did. And for some reason, for some reason, David gave himself permission to disobey it. And the question comes up sometimes, well, you got so what is this deal? I mean, it's kind of confusing because in the Old Testament, you, you have polygamy and like Abraham. And, and, and then you had uh, some of the guys in Genesis had more than, yeah, let me, let me give you a little something from the Bible Almanac. It was edited by J.I. Packer. He has a section called The Erosion of the Family in the Old Testament. Let me give this to you real quick. He says, a family that lives in harmony and in genuine love is a delight to all associated with it. Surely this is what God had in mind when he established the family. Unfortunately, the Bible shows us few families that attain this ideal. Throughout Bible history, families were being eroded by social, economic, and religious pressures. One of the pressures was polygamy. There was con continuous domestic strife when two women shared a husband in Old Testament times. Now you stop and think about this, and you think about you. So you got about all you can handle with one woman, right? And I'm sure she's a wonderful woman. Okay, but you pretty much got your plate full, don't you? Now you think about bringing in another one. I don't know. I don't think you want to do that. Do you? I mean, come on. You know, one of the reasons guys get themselves in trouble sexually is they start fantasizing. But you want to fantasize. And I can't, you know, guys, I, I don't know if I said this last week here or not, or if I said it at the retreat. I can never remember where I said something. If you want to fantasize about something, don't fantasize about what that gal would look like with her clothes off. You fantasize what your life will look like if you take her clothes off. And then now you're entangled. And then now there are consequences. And now that, you start thinking about that. You want to, find a, you want to fantasize about something? You start fantasizing about consequences. Realistically. Well, it would just be a little, just a little kind of, no big deal. Well, yeah, it would be. Yeah, it would be. The Hebrew word for the second wife literally meant rival wife. He references 1 Samuel 1.6. This suggests that bitterness and hostility usually existed between polygamous wives. And you see these things on TV where they do these things on the Mormons and these guys have got these 14 women running around. They're all just, you know, everybody's just... No. That's not real. That's not real. That's put on, that's television. No, that's not how it works. You don't get four or five or eight women sharing the same guy and everybody just loves each other and gets along. She's got her kids, she's got her kids, and, and they're rivals and they want little Johnny to be, but he wants little uh, Makabib to be the favorite. And man, I mean, it's, it's war. And it's all under your own house. You don't want that. You don't want that. Nevertheless, polygamy was customary, especially in the time of the patriarch, especially in Genesis, it was customary. In a polygamous marriage, the husband invariably favored one wife over another, Rachel and Leah. Who was loved more? Rachel. Yeah. But Leah had kids like a rabbit. Rachel was barren until she had Joseph. So was there all kinds of, how much harmony was in that place? Are you kidding me? That sucker probably worked 100 hours a week just so he wouldn't have to go home and deal with that stuff. Wouldn't you do that? 
Oh, I gotta go out and work the fields. He kept buying more land just so we'd have more to do. This caused complications, such as deciding whose child would also be honored as the firstborn. That's why Joseph's brothers hated his guts. Who was the firstborn of Rachel? By the way, there was Rachel, there was uh, Leah, and then they had two handmaidens, Zilpal and Bilhal. And he had all those kids, uh, what, 12 boys and one girl from those four women. And what they all had in common, except for young boy, the youngest, Benjamin, all the rest of them hated Joseph's guts. Why did they hate Joseph's guts? Because he was the firstborn of the woman who was the true love of his father's life. That's why Joseph got the coat at Christmas from L.L. Bean, and the other guys didn't get one. You see how this works out, just practically? Okay. Uh, and you go on, politics was also a motive for polygamy. Often a king sealed the covenant with another king by marrying his ally's daughter. Okay, all right, so this is real clear. All right, now watch this. Where, 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 where are we here? We're back looking at David. The hand of God is all over David. He's made king when he's 30. But in verse 13 of chapter 5, Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. And he knew, he knew it was wrong. He knew it. But he gave himself a pass. He gave himself permission in this area. Well, you know what? It, he gave himself a pass. It, it became the greatest um, point of suffering in his entire life. It truly did. This is what brought him down. Um, David had somewhere, we don't have the exact number, David had somewhere between 8 and 12 wives. Uh, the concubines... Somewhere in that range, maybe a few more, maybe a few less, probably a few more. Okay? All right. Now, turn with me to uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 3, finally. Oh, by the way, after this, then the whole thing with Bathsheba happened. And I think it was, uh, who was it? Alan Redpath, in his book, uh, on the life of David, said that when David was on that patio, instead of being at war with his men, when he was on that patio and looking down and seeing Bathsheba get into that bath, uh, Redpath said something along these lines. Because of David's, that David had given himself a pass in this area, for some reason he felt that he was excluded from what God had said in Deuteronomy 17, 17. Because David had given himself permission to violate Deuteronomy 17, time and time and time again. He'd given himself permission that when he stood on that patio and saw that woman take her clothes off to take that bath, Redpath said that his previous decisions had already predisposed him to the wrong decision in the hour of temptation. Does that not make sense? He just kept making the wrong move. He kept making the wrong move. He kept making the wrong move. More wives, more concubines, wrong move. Kept rationalizing, justifying, wrong move. And he's on the roof, and then, I, well, what the heck? Gosh, what's one more? See, this wasn't polygamy. He was just going to sleep with her. But you see, what happens is when you sin and give yourself permission, and here's the deal. This is why small sins are important. See, we think about the big sins. But whenever you got a big sin, there's always a trail of small sins behind it. I have never in my life, and you talk to any pastor, you talk to any counselor, who talks with somebody who's in adultery, the issue never starts with adultery. Adultery is the result of lying. Um, oh, there's a, well, how'd you meet this? Well, we met at work, or we met at church, or we met, you know, we're in the same Sunday school class, okay? Well, you just look at each other and say, let's commit adultery. No, but there was a little bit of a, there was a social situation and there was just a little connection. And there was a little electricity, a little spark, no big deal. But you see, and then, and then so anyway, and then something else happens and, you know, and something else and, oh gosh, you just have coffee. But you don't want anybody to know, do you? 
Since somebody, well, where were you? And what do you do? You lie. And then there's another lie. And there's another lie. And I'll tell you, adultery is always, always, you backtrack it, trail of lies. Little sins lead to big sins. Where are we going? It's only taken me 49 minutes to get to 1 Kings 11. But I had to set it up, and I think you'll see why. Uh, Solomon has been king. He started great. Solomon had a tremendous start because of what his father David did for him. David wanted to build the temple. Nathan said, God won't let you build the temple because you're a man of bloodshed and war. So your boy's going to build the temple. Now what you can do is help get the infrastructure and start working it out up in Lebanon to get Hiram up there and start shipping stuff down and getting it ready. And you get the warehouses and you, you help him out so he can get a running start, which is what David did. So Solomon had an incredible start. But verse 11, or chapter 11 of 1 Kings says this. <clears throat> now King Solomon, oh by the way, when Solomon, the Lord asked, what can I give you? He didn't ask for riches. He didn't answer this. He, didn't. he asked for what? Wisdom. Why is this man who ever lived? Other than Christ. My son Josh asked me one time, I think he was like junior high school. He came in and the youth group had been studying uh, Solomon. He came in and he goes, hey, Dad, let me ask you something. Wasn't Solomon the wisest man that ever lived? And I said, yeah. He said, but Dad, I mean, he wrote Proverbs and all that. I go, yeah. He said, but Dad, he got all messed up, right? I go, yeah. He said, Dad, I don't get that. How can somebody who's so wise get so messed up? And I said, well, Josh, there's a difference between wisdom and obedience. He had insight. He had great insight. But great insight doesn't ensure obedience. What he wrote was true. What he wrote was inspired by the Spirit of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to do it. And he didn't do it. First Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many. doesn't say one. He didn't love one foreign woman. He loved many foreign women, women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. His first one was Pharaoh's daughter. That was the first one. But he loved many foreign women along with the daughter, of the, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations, watch this now. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. Why not? For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Did Solomon know this? Yes. Had he written down his own copy? Yes. Did he read it every day? No. At some point, he used to. You say, well, does the text say that? No, it doesn't. But I'll guarantee in his early years, when the favor of God was upon him, he was reading it. I'll guarantee you. He was in the Word. He was reminding himself. He was making wise moves. He was making Why? Because he feared the Lord. He was carefully observing all the commandments, just what God said to Joshua. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall not depart from them to the right or to the left, but you shall meditate on them both day and night, so that it may go well with you. You see? Interesting to me, and, and we don't know when he started to veer, but at some point he started giving himself a pass. You see? At some point. Even though he knew, and look at this. Look at this. It says at the end of verse 2, Solomon held fast to these in love. He, he, every time he disobeyed the Lord, his love for the Lord diminished and his love for sin increased. What happened to him is he became hardened in his heart. Did he know it was wrong? Sure, he knew it was wrong. But Solomon held fast to these in love. He wasn't relenting. He wasn't punting. He wasn't repentant. Okay? Verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. It was, lud it was lunacy. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Now watch this. And his wives turned his heart 
away. What a, tra what a tragedy. Watch this, verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and later after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Oh, then Solomon built a high place. It gets worse. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. In our study on Boaz and Ruth, Ruth wanted to get out of Moab because they would take little girls. You see, put them into the horrible temples as prostitutes. They'd take little boys, put marks of dye on their wrists. That meant your boy was going to be sacrificed in the fire of Chemosh. It's child sacrifice. Solomon, you say, Solomon built the temple. Yes, he did. And then in his later years, around the hills of Jerusalem, he built altars to these demon gods. Solomon did. Not only that, verse 7. But for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. You know what Moloch was? They'd throw babies into the fire. This is how far gone this guy got. Uh, thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. He had been in the presence of Almighty God twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of your hand, tear it out of the hand of your son, which he did from his son Rehoboam, who lost the nation which David and uh, Solomon had built. It was torn out of Rehoboam's hand. Verse thirteen. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Uh, David gave himself a little room to have somewhere between 8 to 12 wives. He dies, along comes, comes his son, and he has to have 700 wives. Evil Knievel makes 75 jumps. Robbie Knievel makes 350. You see how the principle works? Sometimes we wonder, the sins of the father shall be visited on the even to the third, the fourth generation. Well, how can that be? We tend to emulate behavior. If you remember Abraham on two occasions, his wife Sarah was beautiful, and they were in situations where there were two kings, two different times, and the king saw Sarah, and would have, you know, and they were attracted to her, and Abraham says, she's my sister. It wasn't his sister, it was his wife. So then later on, Abraham has a son by the name of Isaac, he has a wife, a beautiful girl by the name of Rebecca. Later on, he gets in a situation, and some king eyeballs Rebecca. You know what Isaac says? She's my sister. Hmm. This is one of the most tragic stories in all the Bible. Um, these three principles have been around for a long time, but I want to give them to you. Uh, they're, they're not original with me, although I put them in my book, Finishing Strong. Three great principles about sin. Here's number one. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. Let's stop and think real quick. Go back to David. So on that night, he sees Bathsheba getting in the tub. How far did David want to go that night, do you think? I mean, what do you think he was after? I think he was after just a one-night stand. No big deal. But you see, the problem was sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. And suddenly, she gets a note, he's, she's pregnant. Oh my gosh, I had to cover him. So you get Uriah back, and then okay, and he's not falling for it, so let's put him on the front line. So now David's a murderer. And then the baby's born, and now that baby dies, and you, you see, oh, and you see it just, see this is where I'm saying, guys, if you're gonna fantasize, fantasize realistically 
about the consequences. This many guys, I'll tell you this, this many guys, there's somebody in here who's right on the verge. And you're right up against the line where you shouldn't be. I have no clue who you are. I'm just saying, statistics, by the sheer odds that we have an enemy who goes about seeking whom he may devour, he's trying to devour somebody in here. And this is for you. The Spirit of God is talking to you. And you know what you need to do. And what you need to do is cut it off. Cut it off. I mean cut it off. Well, I don't want to hurt her. You've already hurt her. What about your wife? What about your kids? Get your head in the ball game. The Spirit of God is trying to get to you. Cut it off. End it. Or your carcass is going to be hanging on a meat hook. Read what Proverbs said about the guy that goes into the adulteress. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. Number two, sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. How long did David want to stay? Oh, just a night. Screwed up his whole life. And then it affected all his sons. And then you see he's got all this stuff with all these different women. And you, read, and you, you look at the life of David, what was going on in his house, rivalries between boys. He had one son rape a, step, a stepsister. And because a stepsister is raped, another son waits and takes advantage and throws a party and gets everybody there, and then he kills the other boy. I mean, it was just, it, it, it grieved him, it broke his heart for the rest of his life, and it all started with a violation of Deuteronomy 17, 17. It was for his whole life. Let alone Solomon, what happened to Solomon. Here's the third principle. Sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay. See, this is reality. These are the consequences of sin. These are the consequences that in the moment, in the moment of passion, in the moment of lust that we really think about, but they are the real principles. Uh, C.S. Lewis, at the age of 35, was a fairly new Christian, but he wrote to a friend, and he said this, suppose you were, and he was talking on the context of lust and temptation. Suppose you were taking a dog on a leash past a post, you know what happens. The dog tries to go to the wrong side and gets his head looped around the post. You see that he can't do it, and therefore you pull him back. You pull him back because you want to enable him to go forward. He wants exactly the same thing, to go forward. For that very reason, he resists your pullback. Or if he is an obedient dog, yields to it reluctantly as a matter of duty, which seems to him to be quite in opposition to his own will. Though in fact, it is only by yielding to you that he will ever succeed in getting what he wants. And then Lewis says this, in regard to temptation and lust, when we are tempted, we must remember that just because God wants for us what we really want, and only he knows the way to get it, therefore he must, in a sense, be quite ruthless towards sin. He is not like a human authority who can be begged off or caught in an indulgent mood. The more he loves you, the more determined he must be to pull you back from your way, which leads nowhere into his way, which leads you where you want to go. Hence, the words of George MacDonald, that the Father is the all-punishing, all-pardoning Father. You may go the wrong way again, and again he may forgive you as the dog's master may extricate the dog after he has tied the whole leash around the lamppost. But there is no hope in the end of getting where you want to go except by going God's way. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. Those whom he loves, he pulls you back. We fight. Because we think there's momentary pleasure with this, but it's not. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand, there is pleasure forever. This is serious stuff. The same enemy that took down these men is trying to take down us. May we have teachable hearts and respond to God's spirit. Thank you, Father.
uh, I'm grateful that my life story is not on the pages of Scripture. But we are so grateful that these men, their stories are there for us to learn from. Uh, better men than us, certainly better gifts. Uh, men uh, who, who, who knew you and were ambushed by the enemy. Uh, Father, we, we have all fallen short. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for the amazing grace, the amazing forgiveness. Thank you for pulling us back from sin. And when we continue to go back, you'll pull us back. You'll yank us. May we learn, Lord, to quit going where we shouldn't go. There's only one way to what we really desire in our hearts, and it's with you. Help us to trust you with our lives. Thank you for forgiveness of our past sin. And I would pray that you would give us wisdom to say no to present sin. If we need help, may we talk to a brother who we can trust, who can help us with something, some things we can't fight alone. Give us the courage to go to someone who can be trusted and say, I need help. I'm struggling. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.